Welcome to the DTB podcast for September 2017, volume 55, number nine. My name is David Fazakli. I'm DTB's deputy editor. Hello, and I'm James Cave, DTB editor-in-chief. This month's editorial explores national recommendations on vitamin D intake. In particular, we focus on the implications for young people. So what are the concerns and issues that we raise? So we've looked at adolescents in particular uh, because we feel that they're an interesting group that perhaps has been missed. The Scientific Advisory Committee on Nutrition put through some recommendations in 2016 which were a landmark really for vitamin D supplementation and then basically said that anyone over four years old ought to be on 10 micrograms of supplementation a day and they they took that figure because that was the amount that was required to get about 96 percent of the population at a vitamin d level above 25 nanomoles per liter so that's that's the background to this they've done this and in the past i think a lot of uh, gps and people involved in maternity know that they've been at risk groups pregnant women young babies who are being breastfed and the elderly over 65 and a lot of um, focus has been on them if you like and uh, we now should be offering supplementation to a much wider group and the problem we have is this this group of adolescents who um, are not great oily fish and cod liver oil partakers. So there is some evidence that this group are at risk? Yes, yeah, so I think we, we, we found some evidence that around 20% of adolescents have a year-round deficit um, deficiency of vitamin D, and that rises to about 40% in the winter. And what do we know about how good they are at taking or having a diet that contains enough vitamin well, D? Well, as you say, we're, we're looking at 10 micrograms per day for people, and their average intake apparently is around 2 micrograms a day, so well off the recommended amount. And is there anything we know about helping this group? Well, this is the difficulty, isn't it? This, these are a group of young adults who rarely see their GP, are not really usually involved in uh, health care or seeking health care advice. So I think you know what we basically highlight in this editorial is that these are a group that are at risk. They're perhaps hard to get to. And you know we need to be thinking about how, if we uh, want to implement these new guidelines, how we, how we get hold of these groups. So at the moment, no easy answers. No easy answers, no. Okay, thank you very much. Our first main article reviews the management of scarlet fever. So question one, why have we chosen this? So uh, this has been something we've been thinking about for a while, and there's recently been some concern about an increase incidence of scarlet fever in the UK. It was a condition that was quite common in the 1940s and 50s, with about 250 notifications per 100,000 population per year in that sort of time. And then it dropped almost to nothing uh, in the noughties, around 2000. There are only f- about five cases per 100,000 population. And then more recently, that's risen to about 25 per 100,000 population per year. Now, of course, there are issues around uh, notifications and how good GPs and other clinicians are at notifying the public health authorities about this but there was that issue, there was the rise in uh, notifications. And the other issue which I think we wanted to look at was we've been very aware with antibiotic stewardship that we need to be reducing our use of antibiotics. And I think primary care has been very good at reducing its use of antibiotics for conditions such as tonsillitis, so titus media, sinusitis. And yet we're being 
recommended that we should be prescribing antibiotics for all patients with scarlet fever, even those with very mild symptoms. And we wanted to be able to look at the evidence for that and see whether that evidence is changing in light of perhaps the change in the incidence of serious side effects from scarlet fever. So for most people, scarlet fever, mild, self-limiting condition? Absolutely. And I know a lot of GPs sometimes call it scarletina in these situations just to not alarm parents. So yes, and for a lot of, for the majority of cases, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's one of those situations where a child will have a fever and then two or three days later get this very florid rash, which often alarms parents and they come and see us. And uh, it's, it's one of those sort of conditions which is quite fun to see. It's easy to diagnose and very often, you know, you can demonstrate the strawberry tongue or other features of it, which, which make it absolutely classic. But there are some serious complications. Well, this is it. I mean, this is the problem we have. There are suppurative complications, which you similar to the ones we get with tonsillitis, like otitis media and peritonsial abscesses or quincies. And then, of course, there are the non-suppurative complications, which are much, much rarer, things like acute rheumatic fever and strep. Um, glomerulonephritis and those are incredibly rare now I mean the instance in general for rheumatic fever in the UK is now running about one case per 100,000 population per year and you know that that's the issue really is are we treating a lot of mild conditions to prevent perhaps some quite rare complications and with the consequences that you've got the risk of the antibiotic treatment itself this is it I mean I think you know looking back all the work done years and years ago by various researchers, um, Professor Howie and Dundee, for example, did some very good work demonstrating that you were more likely to cause an anaphylactic shock in a child uh, with a tonsillitis by giving them antibiotics than you were to prevent them getting rheumatic fever. So we've become very familiar with the message that if it's tonsillitis, it may well be viral, don't bother treating with antibiotics. For this, for scarlet fever, we know it's bacterial. But the message still is treat everybody. Yes, and I, and I think as it stands, that's how it must be. Um, you know, there are serious complications from these strep infections. Once again, we've, we found it difficult to look for the evidence. So obviously you've got invasive group A streptococcal infections. This is things like necrotizing fasciitis and streptococcal toxic shock syndrome, really nasty conditions with high mortalities, 15 to 25% mortality. So these are horrible conditions. They are rare, and the question is, are we preventing those sorts of infections by treating scarlet fever or do they come on as a separate sort of pathology and that's the bit where we couldn't find any evidence and, and whilst there isn't the evidence that doesn't mean we we should stop treating what I think it means is and what we talk about in the article is we need more current up-to-date evidence to support the blanket treatment of this condition in children because with antibiotic stewardship being as it is, I think we have to be absolutely clear in all areas. And, you know, a lot of us as GPs who've been around for 20 or 30 years remember GPs using the excuse that they were preventing rheumatic fever and glomerulonephritis to treat tonsillitis. And, and we're now aware that that was not good thinking then. And the question is, is it still good thinking uh, to be prescribing antibiotics for all cases of scarlet fever? The answer is from Public Health England, yes, we should be doing that. And we're not suggesting GPs stop that. But as an article, we're just raising that flag and saying, where's the evidence to continue this in the future? OK, thank you very much. And our last article this month reviews two new drugs for the treatment of rheumatoid arthritis. 
So unlike many of the drugs we've got familiar with over the recent years, these two drugs, baricitinib and tofacitinib, are taken orally. So what about the evidence of benefits of these two new drugs? So for baricitinib, we have a seven-trial meta-analysis of about 3,000 patients and three placebo-controlled trials. And baricitinib seems to be at least as good in combination with conventional DMARDs, such as methotrexate, as biologicals in combination with conventional DMARDs. And we have one study where they compared adilumumab with baricitinib, and baricitinib came out as superior in action to that. And for tofacitinib? So for tofacitinib, we've got two Cochrane reviews, one where they trialled it in various combinations with biologicals in patients who hadn't responded to conventional DMARDs, and another Cochrane review where they compared it once again with other combinations of conventional DMARDs in patients who hadn't been responsive to biological agents. And antofasatinib certainly came out as uh, comparable with biologicals in that, in that uh, Cochrane review. So evidence from short-term studies saying they do something. What about harms? Because with all these drugs, and particularly a lot of the other drugs for RA, they do have some fairly major side effects, adverse effects. Absolutely. And of course, if you're, if you're dampening down the inflammatory response, you're having an impact on uh, the immune process. And these drugs are similar to biologicals in that uh, you need to screen for t- tuberculosis, hepatitis. You need to be careful about infections. And there's about a 2 to 3% per year serious infection rate in patients taking these drugs. We have about one to three years worth of data at the moment. As you say, you know, long term, that's as far as we go at the moment. And there were some interesting findings around lipid levels. Yes, yeah, so they cause a rise in lipid levels and therefore it's advised that these should be checked and uh, treated if appropriately. So we know a little bit about the harms. We know a little bit about their benefits. Are these for GPs? No, they're not for GPs to, to start. I'm sure with time we'll be monitoring them and uh, providing shared care with rheumatologists. Uh, at the moment, only baricitinib has been looked at by NICE. There's guidance for its use, and it's for only in uh, severe disease that's been unresponsive to conventional DMARDs. And we're expecting another NICE guidance on tofacitinib later in the year. Indeed, and uh, the Scottish uh, consortium are looking at the two at the moment okay thank you very much to read these in any of our articles please visit our website dtb.bmj.com and any comments or feedback please email dtb editor at bmj.com thank you very much